Good morning. Welcome, welcome. Glad that you are joining us. Um, I'm Tim Shaney. I'm the student pastor, and I'm so excited to share with you as we continue our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Last couple of weeks, we've been in our new normal series talking about the Beatitudes, how Jesus has been setting a new normal for his kingdom. And now we get to a spot in his message where he gives two examples of what that will look like lived out. Join, join with me in prayer. Father, these people don't need to hear me. They don't need to hear my words. They need to hear from you. So I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word in a way that it would cause us to, to see you for who you are. Move us. It's in your name for your glory we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I was 10 and I was going to save my neighborhood for Jesus. I had a master plan. See, my sister came up to me and said, hey, I need help with the paperwork, uh, paper route this week. Light bulb went off. Have an idea. Because the paper route was the same, um, it was the same through our neighborhood, same houses that I would walk by. Yes, I walked to, to school barefoot, uphill, all three ways, including the shortcut. And these were the same houses, the same people. And some, some of them I knew their names. Some of them I just see them out in their yard. Um, <clears throat> And this was my opportunity. So my plan was to get some index cards and write a message to them and stick it into the newspaper, okay? I didn't tell anybody this was covert ops for Jesus, okay? And so here's what the note effectively said. I don't know if you know who Jesus is, but I, I want you to because he died for you and he loves you very much. If I would love to talk to, to more I'd love to tell you more, and then I put my phone number and my name. I was excited. Went, did Not every house got one, just the ones that, that I just felt like burdened for. Maybe I saw them out in the yard, and I knew who they were. And so <clears throat> I put, I come back, and, you know, I'm like, yes, this is awesome. Don't hear anything, no phone calls. Then it's dinner time that night. The phone rings. My sister runs and answers the phone because they, they weren't in our pocket back then. They were on the wall. So <clears throat> she runs and, and she, she says, Tim, it's for you. Some woman about a note in the newspaper? I'm like, yes. This is it. This is the moment. God is moving. We're, lives are going to be changed. And so I excitedly go to the phone. Uh, but I start going to the phone, and then the next words out of her mouth strike fear in me. She says, and she's really, really mad. Now I sheepishly go to the phone, and it's like, he hello? And this angry, bitter woman told me how awful I was and how dare you. This is illegal, don't you know this? I could call the authorities on it. And I'm a 10-year-old scared. And I hang up the phone. And I'm confused and, and disoriented. You see, 
as a 10-year-old boy, I understood that this world needed light. I even understood that Jesus was that light. I simply didn't yet know what it would cost me to shine. You see, it's a tricky thing to save a world that doesn't think it needs saving. To offer a lifeline to someone that doesn't see their peril. To, to present truth to a people that have been preconditioned to believe it a lie. And Jesus' opening to his message, he begins by flipping upside down even how the religious viewed things. He, he tells the countryside that the principles and the priorities that they lived by and which they were building their lives on and in defining themselves by, that it was backward and that it was upside down. So before we dive into today's text, before we unpack it, let's back up and see it in context. Matthew 6, 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Then he continues to, to tell them how this world will react to this hashtag blessed life. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those when they revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And now our text for today. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This world needs us to be salt and light. But they don't know it, they don't want it, so they resist it. So what do we do? We're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. In ancient Rome, they had a saying, there's nothing more useful than sun and salt. I don't know why that's a saying, a little goofy, um, but they, I guess they greeted people with that. Did you know there's nothing more useful than sun and salt? Is that how the world sees us? As useful? Nothing more useful? Is that what our community leaders, when they get together and they look at all the issues, do they go, you know what we need? You know what that would make everything better? We need one more church. Why don't they? Maybe it's because they don't see something radically different, but just another group of people with their own opinions, wrong ones at that. 
Dr. Lloyd-Jones says this, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, it inver- she invariably attracts it. But when I look at this text, there, there's a disconnect. If, if I'm salt and light to, to a world that doesn't want either, then where does that leave me? How do I fit in? I like to fit in. We all want to belong. Jesus, are you telling me to live a life that makes me not belong? We all want to be seen as important. Jesus, are you telling me to value the, th- the things that the world doesn't value and, to pers- and, and forsake the things, the very things that the world pursues? Jesus, what are you saying here? He's saying the world needs you to be salt and light. But we really don't understand it, so we don't really fully believe it. So we don't live it, and they don't see it. But if I'm honest, sometimes I'm that 10-year-old boy again, with my spirit crushed, afraid to truly trust who God has made me to be. I wrestle with my ability to be brave enough to have the right words, to say the right things. And maybe you wrestle with being bright enough to shine, to, to, to make a difference. I'm talking about a real difference, life-changing difference. Maybe you, maybe you compare your goodness or your talent uh, to someone else, and you're like, they don't need me. You got this. And if persecution or even pressure it, it can come of it, do I really want that? I'm the salt of the earth. Besides that sounding weird and cryptic, it sounds pretty important. And maybe you don't feel all that important. I'm the light of the world. Okay. I've been in church long enough to know that that's what Jesus called himself. And I'm not that. I could never be that. Jesus understands our pushback. In fact, it's the whole point he was trying to make in his opening statements of his message. It isn't about us. It's about Jesus filling us and making us into something that we could never be. Let's look at the text again. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and thrown underneath people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give your glory, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus introduces these new values by which to live. And now, looking at his disciples and those who are truly blessed, he continues by telling them what their role in this life is. He tells them who they really are. He starts with saying, you are. Now, there are seven times in the New Testament where Jesus says, I am. John writes, records them for us. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the the resurrection and the life. I am the way, truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And here, he makes two 
you are statements. Know this. It is impossible to know who you really are without first knowing who he is. Jesus says, you are. He doesn't say you can be or you will be. This is your potential to become. If you mind your P's and Q's, this is what you, you, you have to look forward to. No, he says you are. This is your identity. Notice, identity always precedes activity. Being before doing. We don't get our identity from what we do. We do what we do because what or who we are. So Jesus is about to tell his disciples who they are in relation to the world, who they are. He says you. He doesn't say you casually. He says it emphatically, which that means, that translates to us. He says you and you alone. The identity and purpose he's about to connect to the disciples belongs to them exclusively. This is who you are. There's no one else. No one else can be who you are. Therefore, no one can do what I have for you to do. You alone, the world needs you. Now, with all of that said, let's look a closer look, take a closer look at what we are. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Let's talk about salt for a minute. Here's some things about salt you may not have known. Uh, Disclaimer. I have not tried all these, so I can't verify that these work, but I did find them on the Google, so that's got to be true. Um, but here are some things that you, don't, you may not know. Salt can put out a fire. Salt can deodorize your shoes. It can remove lipstick from glassware. Prevent your new towels from fading in the wash, ladies. I don't know why that's a ladies thing. That was, that was rude of me. Um, guys, wash your own towels. Um, drip proof your, your, your candles. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, it's a natural alternative to mouthwash. Guys, uh, no apologies there. Um, you can make your lips soft and smooth. Uh, refresh your chopping boards. Get rid of watermarks and wood furniture. Red wine stains out of carpet. Unclog a drain. Keep milk fresh longer. Stop weeds from growing between your patio slabs. Ant repellent. Uh, instant pain relief from a bee sting or ease the itch of a mosquito bite. Okay, now Jesus probably didn't have these in the forefront of his mind uh, when he was saying, you're the salt of the earth. Now, we could over-spiritualize things and say, ooh, we put out fire and find some truth there. We may even go, red, red stains out of carpet. Oh, I see where he's going with that. Or ant repellent. I got nothing. Um, but that's probably not what he was saying. Because his audience would understand the uses, five primary uses that salt was used for in ancient times. The first one was purity. They had cleansing properties, and they would use it in, in that manner. And the, and the second one, probably the primary one, was preservation. They had no refrigeration back then, so if you, if you caught a fish and you wanted to eat that fish next week and you didn't put salt on it, you don't want to eat that fish next week. Um, and so salt preserved food. They'd rub it on meat. They'd pack fish in it. You know, um, they'd soak their olives in it. It was, it was vastly important. Flavor. 
we think, well, we use flavor, but did they use it for flavor? They did. Job 6, 6. Uh, Job says this. He, he says, is tasteless food eaten without salt? He's saying, I've suffered enough. Pass the salt. It's used for healing. It was used to help skin diseases and respiratory issues. They would mix it with wine and vinegar to help the tummy troubles. And the fifth one, we know this, same for them, it created thirst. So instantly, we can see the correlation between salt and the church, right? We can see, oh, purity, preservation, flavor, we should add flavor. You know, we can see these things. And he says, but he says, you are the salt of the earth. He has defined, Jesus has just defined two communities, his disciples, the church, and the world. The illustration is that the latter needs the former. The earth needs salt to preserve it. Why? Because it's in a state of decay, disease, and it's unsavory. It's in, it's in desperate need of salt. Jesus is telling his disciples that we, those who define, that are defined by kingdom values, the kingdom values of brokenness, mourning over our, our own sin, humble, hungry for righteousness, mercy, a merciful, pure in heart, peacekeeping, we are what will keep this world from decay. We'll add flavor to this world. We'll bring healing. We, by the way we live, can make this world hunger and thirst for something better, for something truer. Then Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, salt is one of the most stable molecular compounds on the planet. Sure, in a lab you could probably take salt and have some chemical reactions and make it unsalty. But Jesus isn't putting his lab coat on here. He's speaking to a culture of his time that would understand that by the method salt was collected, it was known to happen. See, salt was collected from marshes or shorelines, and they would collect it in shallow pools where the sun would come down and evaporate the salt water, leaving this white powdery salt that was a combination of salt, good old sodium chloride, but also other minerals and impurities. And this salt would be, it would be stored. And if when it was stored, it got wet, much of the salt would dissolve, leaving the other minerals, this white powder that still looked like salt, but it wasn't salty. The crowd would have been tracking the difference between pure salt and salt that wasn't really salty. They would understand, you put this on your fish, you're not eating the fish. You put this on your food, you're like, eating dust. Jesus goes on to tell us about the salt, what it's good for. He says it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In Luke 14, um, Luke records him saying, it's not even good for soil or the manure pile. So, in fact, th this impure salt, when it got wet, most of the salt was dissolved. If all of the salt was dissolved carefully, then they would take those minerals and they'd put it in their soil. And it would help fertilize and enrich uh, the farmland. But that wasn't the case. What happened to your stored salt, it didn't get all of it out of it. 
most of it, so it was no longer really salty or beneficial for fish or, or food or for flavor. But they couldn't put it on soil because there's still some salt in it and it would kill the weeds in your patio slabs and it would kill their vegetation. So it would, wouldn't be salty enough. It'd be salty enough to ruin soil, but not, no good for anything else. Unsalty salt would ruin manure. So the only thing left for it to be used was as a no-slip additive to roads and to paths to be trampled by men. Now let that sink in for a minute because he isn't talking about salt. He is talking about the church or more precisely, those that claim to follow Jesus but are no different than the world. That type of life will ruin something that is already breaking apart and decomposing. Ouch. He is saying the disciples of Jesus that look like disciples of the world aren't fit to even be mixed into the world. They're fit to be trampled by men. So expect that. We're called to be different, but if we aren't different, who are we helping? Daniel Atkins puts it this way. Compromise is a deadly cancer to our witness to the world. When we are seduced by the sirens of materialism, political expediency, irresponsible rhetoric, moral laxity, or foolish actions, the attractiveness and beauty of the Christian life is lost. However, if we maintain our commitments and convictions to Christ with grace and humility, people will inevitably take notice. They will be drawn to us. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Not you will be, you are, and you alone. So let's be honest. This whole not being salty and being trampled by men, being considered unworthy, that's, that's scary. At least it is to me. So what's the secret to being this pure salt? What's, what's the secret to being pure it's the same as the secret to pure salt in Jesus' time. The source. You see, what, what determined whether salt was pure or filled with impurities had everything to do with where it was mined from. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's primarily saying two things. You are pure and you're useful. Not because of anything we can do, but because of what he has done in us. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. It is through our brokenness that he has made us pure and he continues to make us pure. Jesus says, blessed are those that are pure. Where does purity start? From being poor in spirit. We are pure because Jesus is our source. He's the one that makes us pure. He makes us salty. You see, being the salt of the earth is a matter of purity. When the storms hit you, does your saltiness dissolve? See, the world needs a faith and a life that doesn't disintegrate under pressure, but that's when it gets to work. So let's get practical for a moment. How do we, how do we get to work? First, rely on the source. Understand that being the salt of the earth is a matter of purity. 
And that comes from him, not from us. Second, recognize your tendency to oversalt or undersalt. We've all eaten oversalted food. It gets ruined. And we've all asked to pass the salt because it's been undersalted and it's, it's not very flavorful. Recognize that you have a tendency to do one of two things. When it comes to sharing your faith, you're either an oversalter, you have a tendency to be an oversalter, you can tell everybody, and you know, you're just a Bible thumping, you're just out there, and, and you, you may not be fully aware of how you're affecting those that are around you, and so they're being offended not by the gospel, but by you, because you're just like dumping salt, and they're like, I just need it a little bit. <laughs> or you're an undersalter. Whether that's because you're timid or shy or because you, you love doing things for other people, but connecting it to Jesus' name. And so you undersalt things. Recognize your tendency so that you can compensate for that. Colossians 4, 5 through 6, Paul writes this. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. He's talking about the world. Making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Know that situations ebb and flow and, and what you need to do in response to that. So know your tendencies and know, know the need. And the third, simple. Get out, of the, get out of the shaker. Jesus, in his command to make disciples, says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And a closer look at that word go, we see that the tense of it, it says, as you go. As you go out into the world, as you go wherever you go, you're salt, you're light, you're making disciples. As you go, as you go home, as you go to work, to the gym, to the church, to small group, when you go on vacation, when you go to Walmart, that's a mission field. You are the salt of the earth. Then Jesus, then he moves to his second you are statement. He says, you are the light of the world. Now his listeners would understand light as the Old Testament talks about light in different forms. He tells you light is revelation, it's instruction, it's hope, it's joy, it's righteousness, it's salvation. It's the radiance of of a divine presence. And Jesus brings all of those together in John 8, 12, when he says, I am the light of the world. And then the phenomenal, amazing thing is he applies that same image to you, to us, alone. But we're not just a light. We're the light of the world a dark place and capable of producing its own light and finding its own way. Our purpose is to have a relationship with the world in order to shine light. He goes on and says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Facts. That's what he's doing. Simply putting facts out there. A city on a hill, we know this, it can be seen from miles away, especially when it's lit up on a dark night. God didn't redeem us to hide us. He didn't save us to si for us to be silent. People will see us. You see, if being salt of the earth is a matter of purity, 
Being the light of the world is a matter of position. Let me tell you what I mean. Jesus, uh, he's talking about two types of lights here. The source, which like think of it like a sun. The sun has like mega light, right? That's a scientific word. And so we have the sun, and the sun shines, and there's a lot of light coming from the sun. How, how, many, how much energy and light does the, does the moon produce? None, right? The moon I know you're thinking, why does Tim have a disco ball? <laughs> to be fair, I did tell you I was a student pastor right up front. Okay. So the moon has no light of its own. Only the reflection as the sun hits it. So being the light of the world is a matter of position. First, our position in the sun. Our position to this, the son of God. Are we receiving his light? As John puts it, are we walking in his light? Are we basking in his light? Our position is it of one of humility and surrender and brokenness before God so that his light shines on us. Then the second position is our position with the world. As the light shines off into dark places. So we position ourselves so that Jesus' light is on us and reflects off of us into the lives of others. See, verse 15, he says, nor do people put, you don't put a lamp and put it under a basket, but you put it on a stand so all the people in the house can see it. So let me ask you this question. What blocks your light? Let's identify some baskets. These aren't all the baskets that are there. But uh, what about the basket of pride? See, I like light. And sometimes we make it about our own light. We make it about how bright I can shine and, and about how good my th things that I do are and people seeing me and, and, and I make it, and the thing is with this, it, it's, ty it's tiring and the longer that I'm using my own light, the batteries will fade and eventually it'll go dark. And then I feel like I'm worth nothing because my light has gone dark. Or our pride causes us to do this and to shine the light on us. And I start to think that this world revolves around me and you should see me because I'm something. And I want to be something. So look at me. Look at me. Look at me. You already are. Okay, so, um, but the problem is when I shine the light on me, I can't see you. It blinds me to see the needs of the world. Now I can't see my notes. So, Listen to what Jesus says. He says, in the same way, you, by your light, uh, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
A few minutes later, in the same sermon, same message, he says, don't do your works in front of people. In fact, he says, watch out. Don't do your good works publicly to be admired by others, for, for you will lose your reward from the Father in heaven. So one minute, he says, do your works in front of men so they can see God and give him glory. And then he says, don't do your works in front of men, lest God not get the glory. See, it's all about motive. Why I do what I do. Who am I doing this for? For me? Or for him? That basket of pride sometimes covers and blocks our light. Second basket is fear. Could you imagine, uh, imagine for a moment, you're in heaven and you're hanging out with uh, Peter or, or Paul. Let's say you're hanging out with the Apostle Paul. Um, uh, he's written like half the New Testament and he suffered for, for his faith. Imagine you're having this conversation with him and, uh, and you start sharing with him how difficult it, it, it was when you were alive to share your faith with others. And, and he's like, oh, yeah, did they threaten the lions? Did they, did they bring out the lions? No, no. Oh, did they, did they tie you to the stake? Is it going to threaten to like douse you in oil? And like, you know, no, no. Um, oh, they stoned you, right? Like, no, you didn't get stoned, but you got stoned. You know, they rocked your world, right? So is that what happened? No, no, I, I'm just you know, I afraid. You know, it's weird because I, I, I didn't want to get unfriended. I don't want to not be invited to, to that party or to that trip. Um, I was afraid they were going to tease me. See how stupid that is? Again, the word for tasteless was from the word, Greek word for moreno. We get the word moron from. That's free. Third basket distractions. We start to love this world little by little. I mean, this world has some cool things. And, and, and little by little, the things we watch, the things we listen to, the conversations we have, little by little, the darkness, we let it in. And over time, we start seeing the world through its lenses rather than through the eyes of Jesus. And a few moments later in his message, again, Jesus warns the, the disciples and the crowd from this. Listen to what he says in verse 22. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness how deep that darkness is. It's so easy to get distracted by the comforts and ambitions of this world. Several years ago, um, we, took, we were on a mission trip and a student came up to me day three or four and she was like, Tim, why is it that when I'm here, it's so easy for me to be on mission for Jesus? I'm teaching kids, I'm building things, and I, you know, I'm just, I wake up and I, he's on my mind and I can't wait to go out and share about him. Um, but then when I come back to the States, it's so hard. And I told her, every time you walk out this week, 
and you walk out into unconditioned areas, and it's like way hot. And every time you hear a different language being spoken, every time you remind yourself, don't drink the water, every time you take a breath of fresh air and it's not fresh, you're reminded that you're not home. But then you go back home and you think you're home. And we get comfortable. We get distracted by the things that the world says are important, but we know they're not, but we just kind of forget. I don't know which basket you identify with. See, our lights are to shine both like a city on a hill, reaching far for everyone to see, and then also up close and personal, a light for all to see in the house. Parents, if you want your kids to love Jesus, then don't just let your light shine um, out and about, but also in your home. Be the light. Allow Christ to shine through you in all the places. In nearly three decades of, of working with adolescents and their families, I've seen, I've seen students become spiritual giants and, and change their, their schools and, and change their world for Jesus. And they've come from both places. They've come from families that the light was shining bright and they've and faith-filled families. They've also come from broken families that that didn't know Jesus and that were were dark spiritually dark places. But you want to know where most of the kids that floundered in their faith in high school or when they go off to college and they deconstructed their faith? You want to know the type of home that a majority of them came from? Homes in which the parents talked the talk, but didn't walk the walk. Parents that shine their light when they're out and about, but when they're home, it's under a basket. And the home is cold. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to, the, to your Father who is in heaven. See, positioning ourselves to reflect the light of Christ into others. To live openly the life described by the Beatitudes. John Stott puts it this way. Then people will see us and our good works. Seeing us will Sorry, let's start all over. Then people will see us in our good works, and seeing us will glorify God. For they will inevitably recognize that it is by the grace of God we are what we are. That it is his light, not, not our works. That our works are his works done in us and done through us. So it is the light they will praise, not the lamp that bears it. The world needs us to be salt and light. These images that Jesus uses, they're not passive. Salt permeates, light 
penetrates. Salt and light must be spent to affect this world. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Being the light of the world, he came to this dark world to give his life by spending his, to give life by spending his. Listen to the word in John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made were through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and of truth. This morning, as you reflect on who you truly are and to what God is calling you to and has called you to, let those thoughts take you to the cross. Where the light of the world stepped down into darkness that darkness would be vanquished. So as you hold the emblems of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, let him be your source. In him you are made pure. And in him he continues to lead you to live in righteousness. That the world will look at you, but see him. Father, as we pray about Jesus' body being broken for us. We are broken before you, having nothing to offer, yet you make us whole. You call us salt and light, and you send us out into this world. Father, empower us by your spirit to stop death and to dispel the darkness, to complete the work of Jesus and bring your kingdom here. Amen.